Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 150. Would you, as president, meet with the leaders of a country like North Korea? Obama extraordinarily said, I'd meet with him. Senator Obama made his intentions crystal clear on the campaign trail. I will meet, not just with our friends, but with our enemies. President Obama likes talking to dictators. He would meet with some of these madmen without any preconditions. You know, I'm going to reach out to these crazy people uh, around the world and try to get things done. Yeah. So I think that's a mistake. Obama is bowing and scraping before dictators. What is Team Obama doing? This is a clip put together by Now This News. And in it, they showed how years ago, Fox News was very critical of Barack Obama when he said that he would like to meet with the leader of North Korea. But now, now that Donald Trump has expressed interest in doing the same thing, well, well, here's some more of the video. With these people. A remarkable turnaround in relations between two historic adversaries. The commander-in-chief's leadership is now leading to a major foreign policy breakthrough. Another stunning Donald Trump breakthrough. President Trump scoring a big win. It's time to celebrate a great victory when it happens. President Trump proves the experts wrong again. Now, this is hypocrisy, sure, and it's a double standard. And I think that one of the things we immediately take from something like this, from watching something like this, is that there's some malevolent intent behind it, that the anchors and the pundits and producers over at Fox knew what they were doing. But now that I've had a chance to speak with some researchers who study the metacognitive awareness of belief change, I can't help but wonder if the people over at Fox News, while praising Trump, had any recollection at all that they once felt much differently about American presidents reaching out to North Korea. Yeah, and I mean, it's, I think one of the things that's interesting about this phenomenon is that in many cases, we just don't have any record of what we used to believe or how we used to feel about things. That's psychologist Michael Wolf. My name is Michael Wolf. I'm a professor of psychology at Grand Valley State University in Michigan. Wolf told me that when news outlets like Fox or when politicians or other public figures change their minds, the public often sees that as hypocrisy or a lack of conviction. One of the most famous instances of this was in 2004 when John Kerry was running for president. Many of the attack ads called him a flip-flopper for saying that he voted for an appropriations bill before he later voted against it. For updating his priors in light of new evidence, the opposition ran ads like this. Never commit to what you believe in. Who will ever commit to you? John Kerry has changed his mind on all these important issues. Now there's nothing wrong with a little indecision, as long as your job doesn't involve any responsibility. John Kerry has changed his mind time and time again. If you thought you could trust him, you might want to change your mind too. It's a pretty good ad, you have to admit. I mean, it's ridiculous, but, uh, you know, it's politics. But Wolf says that we change our minds like this all the time. 
It's just that our changes aren't recorded for posterity. And so we assume that what we believe now is what we've always believed. Yeah, that's right. They, yes, they are documented and it would be easy for us to convince ourselves that we don't change, but maybe all that's happening is our old opinions are not documented. (laughs) Sometimes though, our old opinions are documented. And if you've ever read an old journal or a diary, you know this all too well. In fact, you will likely be confronted with a stark realization that if you could go back in time and meet your old self, you might not get along. You might argue about the same kinds of things that you argue with other people about today. And now, even if you don't journal or write in a diary, with social media, we are all able to see that we're leaving behind old versions of ourselves, remnants of past beliefs that will probably make us cringe as the decades erode our old beliefs and experience replaces them with new ones. You know, now with social media, we have a lot more documentation of our day-to-day thoughts. And certainly if you are, say, a prominent politician and you're on TV, you're being interviewed all the time, then your beliefs over time are very well documented. So it would be easier to go back and point to a time in which someone's beliefs may be different. But for most of us, we live our lives without documenting our beliefs moment to moment. And so there just is no way of knowing whether our current beliefs have changed or not. And this is the topic of a new paper that Wolf and his colleagues, psychologist Todd Williams, have recently published. The Strange, Subjective, Invisible Nature of Personal Belief Change. Both to ourselves and to other people, we don't like to appear inconsistent. That's Dr. Williams, and he says that because brains value consistency so much and are so determined to avoid the threat of decoherence, When our beliefs change, we more or less forget that we ever believed otherwise. That way, the story we tell ourselves about who we are can remain more or less heroic, with a stable, steadfast protagonist whose convictions rarely waver, or at least they don't waver as much as those of shifty, flip-flopping politicians. Sometimes pointing out inconsistency, say, between a current attitude and a previous one, might elicit what's called cognitive dissonance. And that's just sort of an uncomfortable mental state uh, where we realize that there's an inconsistency between our behavior and attitudes. Cognitive dissonance is a well-documented phenomenon in psychology and neuroscience, but one of the aspects of cognitive dissonance that hasn't been researched in any detail is that Well, it it isn't something we always notice. When we feel dissonance between belief and behavior, or attitude and belief, or a belief and the presence of challenging evidence that calls that belief into question, we resolve the dissonance by eliminating one side of the conflict. For instance, if you believe the Earth is flat, and then you see a photo of the Earth from space, you can resolve the dissonance by discounting the photo, saying it was photoshopped or something like that. There are many ways to resolve the dissonance so as to avoid changing your beliefs. But if you resolve it in the other direction by admitting you are wrong and then updating your priors, Wolf and Williams say that we often forget that we ever felt wrong in the first place. And Wolf got the idea to study this when he noticed this process happening in his previous research. My research traditionally has been on text comprehension, looking at how people understand things that they read, how we remember and use our knowledge that we gain from reading. And several years ago, I became interested in what happens when people read 
information that's connected to beliefs they have. So how well you understand or don't understand information if it matches your beliefs or doesn't match your beliefs. Um, through a series of studies, I found that if you look at things like people's changes in beliefs, how well you understand what you read turns out to have really nothing to do with whether you change your beliefs or not. So the background that I came into studying beliefs with uh, doesn't turn out to predict where most of the action is in beliefs. Comprehension work is my is my research background um, and a lot of what I have published in the past. And in that research, Wolf was astonished to find that when people did change their minds, well, they just didn't seem to notice. And once they believed differently, they could no longer recall having believed otherwise. And that led him to launch an investigation into why that happens and how it affects people's understanding of belief change itself. And that is what we're going to talk about today on the You Are Not So Smart podcast, right after this commercial break. Turn your dream into a reality with Squarespace. Squarespace makes it easier than ever to launch your passion project. Whether you're looking to start a new business, showcase your work, publish content, sell products, or anything else, Squarespace is the tool for you. With beautiful templates created by world-class designers and the ability to customize just about anything with a few clicks, you can easily make a beautiful website yourself. Squarespace's powerful e-commerce functionality lets you sell anything online and analytics help you grow your site in real time. Everything is optimized for mobile right out of the box and there's nothing to patch or upgrade ever. Buying domains is simple and you'll get the help you need with Squarespace's 24-7 award-winning customer support. Squarespace empowers millions of people from designers to lawyers, artists to gamers restaurants, and gyms, and you can turn your idea like they have into something real. Head to squarespace.com slash so smart for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code so smart to save 10% off of your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash so smart. And the offer code is so smart. You may have noticed that we live in a world that is rich with fascinating knowledge and there's so much out there to learn and discover, but finding the time to do that can be challenging. And that's why you would love The Great Courses Plus. The Great Courses Plus gives you unlimited access to learn from award-winning professors and experts about anything that interests you completely on your schedule. You can watch videos with your family at night and then listen during the day with The Great Courses Plus app. I recommend you check out their course, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, Techniques for Retraining Your Brain. This course offers a powerful look at how to train your brain to become more motivated using exercises that are effective in managing mood and breaking bad habits, as well as tips and techniques for creating lasting, positive changes. 
this course features 24 30-minute lectures on everything from treating depression, anxiety and fear, stress and coping, healing traumatic injuries, forgiveness and letting go, mastering chronic pain, getting a good night's sleep. This is an incredible course. This is a way for you to actually get in there and affect change within your brain that will affect change within your life. I highly recommend this as one of the things you get with your free unlimited access to all the stuff they have. Oh wait, let me tell you about that. You will get so much out of the Great Courses Plus and right now they're offering a free trial, free trial of unlimited access to their entire library. Listen to these words, free, unlimited, entire. They're offering a free trial of unlimited access to their entire library when you sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com/smart. Sign up for your free trial today only at thegreatcoursesplus.com/smart. And now we return to our program. I'm David McCraney and this is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. When psychologists Michael Wolff and Todd Williams set out to study whether people noticed that they had changed their minds, they first needed to be specific about what it was that they were studying. They wanted to study belief change, and as we've mentioned in the show before, once you start studying belief, it can be difficult to separate that mental construct out from the similar mental phenomenon that populate our minds when we consider what we do and don't know. So their first task was to cleanly define the difference between beliefs, attitudes, and knowledge. Sometimes there are differences of opinions on some of these definitions and so we have learned through submitting papers and quibbling with reviewers to just be clear up front about the definitions that we are using. So the difference so an attitude um I could have an attitude that um, I think that we should all have more guns, that it will make us safe. Um, but I might, but, but that attitude is unnecessary, it doesn't necessarily have to be tied to facts. Attitudes are heavily studied in social psychology and attitudes generally refer to something that has a, an emotional or what they call an affective component. And so I might understand that the statistics on the prevalence of guns indicate that the more guns that are present, um, the more danger I am personally of, of being injured by one. Um, but my attitude is irrespective of the true state of affairs in the world. I might think that homosexuality is genetically determined, but I may have an attitude that I wish it wasn't. I may think, you know what, I wish that people had some control over their sexual orientation, but I believe that in the actual world, people do not. So what you think is true of the world is not necessarily the same thing as how you feel about it. Beliefs are our approximation of the true state of affairs in the world. Beliefs in that sense would be connected to actual things in the world. I believe that the climate is changing. For example, for instance, I believe that light switches bring light or I believe that electricity um, can be used to bring light. That is that is rooted in, in, in evidence and needs necessarily to be connected to the state of affairs in real. And knowledge then 
we defined and cognitive psychology has been in the business of studying knowledge for years, but as uh, what we call mental representations or kind of things that you know. So there are lots of ways that knowledge can differ from beliefs. Knowledge um, is all that is stored in memory and is typically constructed of long-term memories that are formed um, usually combined with emotion and other related constructs. So I could say, for example, I have knowledge about the arguments that people use when they say that tax cuts pay for themselves through increased economic activity. I may believe that those arguments are not accurate and that that statement is false, but nevertheless, I can understand those arguments. Or I understand that people write stories about dragons and I could tell you about the properties of dragons, so that's knowledge. I do not believe that, that dragons actually exist in the world. So our knowledge is that large mass that we have that helps us construct the world. And so attitudes are part of our knowledge of where we stand relative to other people in society. Beliefs um, typically are um, in, the, in the knowledge bank as well um, that refer to how it is um, we believe the world to function. Anybody who is heavily involved in abortion debates knows the arguments that are used on both sides or on all sides of the abortion debate, but knowing the arguments that are used is not the same as understanding what a person's attitude is, which would tell you how they feel or which side they would be on. And so those things, so all three of those things can be different. We have been studying beliefs um, in our research, although there is a fair amount of research on attitude change. In fact, there's a lot more research, I think, on attitude change than there is on belief change, but we have been studying belief change. So with beliefs separated out as the subject of their research, Wolf and Williams began designing an experiment to both change people's minds, that is, change their beliefs, and then to check to see if those people realized that their beliefs had been changed. We first had subjects answer a series of questions about their beliefs in an online pre-screening test. The experiment itself involved uh, having participants initially report what their attitudes were in a pre-screen that occurred about two to three months before they appeared in the lab. The screening was to determine people's current beliefs about issues that were apolitical and less likely to be tied to people's identities. That way, they'd be most likely to update their beliefs in light of new evidence or evidence that they were unaware existed. So they would rate on a one to nine scale the extent to which they believed statements to be true. These statements were generally social science kinds of statements, such as, to what extent do you believe that spanking is an effective means of discipline? To what extent do you believe that uh, watching television violence makes you violent? To what extent do you believe that homosexuality is a choice? And after filling out these online, these questions in the online pre-screening, about two months later, subjects would come into the lab for the experiment. Once they had an equal number of people who believe one way or the other, they moved on to the next stage. Those people came into the lab for the experiment about two months later. Everybody read a text that either described evidence and arguments suggesting that spanking was effective, so half the people read 
that text. The other half read a text that presented evidence and arguments suggesting that spanking was not effective. And we arranged the design so that half of the subjects in the experiment read a text that was consistent with their previous belief or that reinforced their previous belief. The other half read a text that was inconsistent or that went against their previously stated belief. Um, then at a later point, um, participants were asked to recall their, to first to report their current attitudes about spanking and then to recall what their original attitudes were. After reading the texts, everybody then reported their belief about spanking again. And then one of the critical parts of the method was that people tried to recall the response that they gave at the beginning of the semester on this pre-screening questionnaire. So this was the memory task. People had to try to remember what response they gave when they answered the question about two months earlier. And we found basically two main findings. One was that when people read a text that was inconsistent or contradicted their previously stated belief, those people were more likely to shift their beliefs than the people who read a text that was consistent with their beliefs. Um, in most cases, this was not change from one extreme end of the scale all the way to the other. Rather, people would tend to move, say, from one end of the scale towards the middle in terms of their beliefs. And this is typical in research into mind change. Whether it's a belief or an attitude, people don't usually completely change their minds and pull a 180. They move about half that distance, going from strongly valent to ambivalent, or from ambivalent to valent, not from one pole to the other, though that does sometimes happen. And the, the critical finding was that when people change their beliefs, we found a rather large memory error in which people's memory of their belief that they had reported a couple of months earlier tended to be inaccurate. And it was inaccurate in a particular way in that it was much more similar to their current belief than it was to their actual previous belief. So people were essentially acting as if their current belief has always been their belief. That's right. What Wolf and Williams found was a new kind of memory error, one that falls right in line with the previous research into memory. We now know, thanks to the work of researchers like Elizabeth Loftus, that memories aren't stored like files on a hard drive or books on a shelf. Instead, the brain constructs memories on the fly, and it constructs them anew each time we ask it to remember Without anything else to go on, we tend to construct memories that, A, are based on who we are now and what influences are pressing on us at the moment, and B, that tend to paint us in the light we wish to be seen in at that moment. If we're feeling good about ourselves, we remember things in a positive light. If we are feeling bad, we remember them in a negative light. Bottom line, memories are stories we tell ourselves based on what we know and feel now not what we knew and felt way back when we had those experiences that we are trying to recall. What Wolf and Williams found was that we do the same thing when remembering our old beliefs. We think that 
people have a generally poor awareness of our belief changes because we think that belief change doesn't work like uh, changes, say, on a belief dial, where if my belief is at one end and I start reading evidence suggesting that it's wrong, and with each bit of evidence I read, I turn the belief dial down a bit, that would suggest that you are aware of your beliefs as they shift. We think that the process really doesn't work like that, that it works something more along the lines of a situation in which when whenever you want to assess your current beliefs, at that moment, you generate a belief based on information that is salient or easily available at the time. People just don't simply have access to those previous beliefs. Um, and that's because of that, they are using what other information is available. And so in many cases, what will be easily available about your beliefs is your current belief or your, your sort of long-held belief, especially if you know a lot about a topic or if it's particularly important to you, that belief may be relatively stable. But it also could be the case that if you read information or you generate arguments or have a conversation right before somebody asks you to report a belief, and that information is salient or available at the time you generate a belief, that could influence your generation of your belief. And so we think that people just don't seem to be consciously aware of beliefs as they shift, but rather they just construct their beliefs at a particular moment. And then if you want to try to assess whether a belief has changed through a similar process, you would try to construct your memory of a past belief. And that's perhaps a more complicated process because then you are trying to, at a particular moment, construct a memory of what your past version of yourself used to believe. And we think that that process is also a process in which those memories are constructed by information that is salient or available at a particular moment. And one of the things that will probably have an influence over your construction of your past memory of this belief is your memory of your belief at the moment. So we think that under most circumstances, your current beliefs can, at least to some extent, bias your ability to accurately remember what you used to believe in the past. What that has led us to, basically, is to suggest that um, the reason why people are remembering their previous attitudes as close to their own is largely because they do not have access to that previous attitude. Um, it exists within a lot of uh, cognitive psychology um, evidence to suggest that actually we are pretty bad at remembering things. And when we do remember things, what we do is we reconstruct that memory. That is a process by which we piece things together. There's research uh, suggesting that attitudes are constructed on the fly in the same way. Um, literature from reading comprehension suggests that our understanding of the meanings of individual words even is constructed kind of on the fly. So we think of our understanding of individual words often as being kind of like a mental dictionary where you read a word, you go into your memory and look up the meaning of it. But in fact, our understanding of the meaning of individual words seems to shift in subtle ways based on how they're used in a particular sentence in a process that is similar to what we are proposing. So we certainly are not the first ones to propose this general idea that um, you know, our 
immediate thoughts or attitudes or beliefs are sort of cobbled together by what's available. Really, we've been influenced by lots of other work in coming up with this conception that beliefs we think seem to work similarly. We've known for decades that memories are not recalled in a process that is akin to opening up a computer file as you know in which things are exactly as you typed them a few years ago but rather memories are constructed based on information that is available at the time various kinds of cues beliefs about how memory works and so in our paper on awareness of belief change we think that when people attempt to remember previous beliefs, that that process works the same way that it works in trying to generate other kinds of memories, which is that it is constructive and based on information that's available now. And really, I don't think there's any reason to think that trying to remember a belief that you used to hold would act any differently than trying to recall other kinds of memories that are susceptible to various kinds of biases or distortions. So yes, I would say our research is completely consistent with that kind of general conclusion about how memory works. Wolf and Williams also said that the more you think about what you believe, the more salient your old beliefs will be. And so the more resistant they will be to change. And that's why they chose beliefs that were likely not often top of mind for most people. Spanking, violence on television, that sort of thing. Though they haven't done the research yet, they think that a change to beliefs tied to tribal loyalty, identity, or your profession will likely be more noticeable. But for all the rest, for the majority of the change we experience, we update what we believe and then we just forget. We simply forget that we ever believed otherwise. And here's one of the most important takeaways from this discovery. Wolf and Williams both say that since we tend to have poor recall for mind change, we tend to think that mind change must therefore be rare and difficult, which can lead to problems. Since we find that people seem to not have very accurate memories of their previous beliefs after they've changed, or people seem to be relatively unaware of their belief changes, you could easily imagine that that circumstance would lead people to think that their beliefs don't change very much, right? If I think my beliefs about taxes or about Russia have been stable over the years, and I don't know whether they have been or haven't been, I could easily convince myself that my beliefs don't change very much. And there's a potential downside to that, which is that if my beliefs change more frequently than I realize, I may perhaps close myself off to information that is inconsistent with my beliefs because I might mistakenly believe that I'm not going to change my mind about anything. So you hear a lot of uh, talk about people in information silos, for example, right? People go online and they only read information that's consistent with their beliefs and they ignore things that are inconsistent with their beliefs. And perhaps a piece of that, at least, is people may mistakenly think that their beliefs aren't going to change. So you might imagine someone thinking, well, what's the point of reading this particular columnist or going to this particular website? Because I know I'm not going to believe this information or agree with it. And I know I'm not going to change my mind about it. So there's no harm in just ignoring it completely. 
And perhaps we're actually mistaken about the possibility of changing our beliefs because we don't seem to be aware of these changes when they do happen. People, if, if their attitude about whether they have changed their belief or not um, is inaccurate, then that may affect their ability to engage with new information. If you've thought your opinion has always been the same, what kind of incentive is there or what are the odds do you think that more information will change that? So in a way, it can be a, a possibly a self-fulfilling prophecy that we're um, doing to ourself, and that is, is selectively soaking up information that just simply meets our expectations um, and, uh, and eschewing anything that contradicts it. If that's the case, then clearly um, we are going to see um, ex sort of extreme uh, people moving towards the extreme ends of, uh, of attitudes. Um, and uh, in the world of what's going on with respect to Facebook and the delivery of information, we see this as amazingly important to, um, on, on the level of journalism, on the level of politics, and on the level of the public being informed generally. Um, if we're not aware of how beliefs work in the first place, then how can we take measures to ensure that we are attaining, say, the highest levels of accuracy. And so, you know, simple rules of thumb, like informing people that, in fact, belief change is not something that is a photo uh, or a record that we just skip back to, may lead people to be a little bit more savvy in thinking about different viewpoints. One of the consequences, we think, of this general uh, lack of awareness of belief changes is that when people are doing um, things like political polling, and we think this would also be relevant in health domains, our results suggest that people should really stick to questions that ask how you feel or what your opinions are at a particular moment, rather than asking if you have changed. So asking questions such as, do you feel differently about the president now than you did after the election? Uh, does your pain feel better now than it did six months ago? Those kinds of questions feel like natural questions to ask, but potentially you will get inaccurate answers and not because people are trying to deceive you or be hypocritical, but you may get inaccurate answers just because people can't necessarily remember what they used to believe. So in terms of things like polling, I think one of the consequences is that we would do well to ask questions that just stick to how people feel or what their opinions or beliefs are at a particular moment. I think for many people, this will be unsettling. And I'm wondering, how does all this make you feel? I mean, it makes me feel kind of satisfied or hopeful in that it suggests that our beliefs are not so fixed and unchangeable that they can't be helped, um, that people are open to changing beliefs or open to listening to evidence and considering it, even though we often act like our beliefs don't change. And there are lots of examples of trying to get people to change beliefs and finding that it is difficult or that it doesn't work. But it does suggest that we are at least potentially influenced by information that we hear. And so I think in that sense, it's kind of 
encouraging. I also just find it fascinating because to me, one of the things I love about psychology is any kind of example in which evidence suggests that our mental processes work differently than what we would think if we just kind of introspected. You know, so if I just sit here and think about how my own beliefs are formed, the hypothesis that we're working with is not what I would come up with. It, it feels to me very much like my beliefs are stable and they arise from evidence or from values, but I'm well aware of what they are and where they come from. And to suggest that they're maybe more ephemeral or fleeting than I might have thought is just interesting to me because... You know, I love any kind of phenomena in which the predictions or intuitions we would make don't match the evidence. It's yeah. really the things I love about psychology. That is it for this episode of the You're Not So Smart podcast. You can get all the previous episodes at Stitcher and iTunes and SoundCloud and boingboingpodcast.net and youarenotsosmart.com. The show notes are over at youarenotsosmart.com. More great podcasts like this one are over at boingboingpodcasts.net. The opening music, that's Clash by Caravan Palace. You can follow me on Twitter at David McRaney. You can follow the podcast at Not Smart Blog. You can also go to Facebook slash You Are Not So Smart. You can help make this show better and get the show ad free and get other cool stuff at Patreon. If you've gotten any value out of the show, know that it is a one person operation. So support on Patreon is going to help maybe one day make it more than a one person operation. Any kind of level of support, anything you do, you will get the show ad free. At the higher levels, you get t-shirts and signed books and all sorts of other cool stuff. 